this study, I think, is based on the context of this trend in terms of globalization, immigration, and international uh, internationalization. We have students who are studying across the education system. So grades has become this dominant currency the students use to go from one country to another country. Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and the benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. In this episode, my guest is Li Ying Cheng. Dr. Li Ying Cheng is a professor of teaching English as a second foreign language and peer research consultant in the Faculty of Education at Queen's University. She was a recipient of the 2017 Prize for Excellence in Research, Queen's Signature Internal Research Honor. Dr. Cheng is also the director of the Assessment and Evaluation Group at Queen's. Her research interests include the impact of large-scale testing on instruction, the relationship between assessment and instruction, and teaching and learning English for academic purposes. She has obtained research funding totaling more than $1.7 million and conducted more than 220 conference presentations and more than 140 pu- publications. Pleasure to have you here, Li Ying. Um, welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. Well, thank you for having me. Your success with obtaining research funding and, and, and the number of conference presentations, it's, it's uh, staggering. It's amazing. Let's focus in on one of your more, most recent uh, studies, a substantially funded project in, in today's episode. And, and the, the title of the project is What's in a Grade? A Multiple Perspective Validity Study on Grading Policies, Practices, Values, and Consequences. Well, thank you. Uh, this study, I think, is based on the context of this trend in terms of globalization, immigration, and international uh, internationalization. We have students who are studying across the education system. So grades has become this dominant currency the students use to go from one country to another country. This study that you just mentioned, uh, we are only focusing on Chinese students coming to Canada. And you probably know this, that uh, um, Chinese students is occupied about 12 to 15% of all the international students in Canada. And this is Statistic Canada's data. So and it's been consistently a pattern. Um, so let's say a Chinese student has a grades and in their own schools, and they, they wanted to come to Canada to study in elementary school, high school, and university level. Most of the admission are rely on grades. I mean, the grades and plus other things, but grades is a major component. So in order to understand what that grades means, 
we really need to understand the teaching and learning values embedded into that grades. And we definitely know that China and in the Canadian context, we have a different values about teaching and learning. I'm just giving you a couple of experience. Like in China, the education system is very much influenced by large-scale testing, public exams. So the teachers practice when they give students the grades, it's much more it's really influenced by the public examination. So in terms of uh, the kind of uh, uh, ways of collecting students' achievement data, they reflect that. Would that be for liberal arts and humanities as well as uh, natural science? It's for all subjects, for all school subjects. Um, the other thing is, in, in China, the grades is always reflect the learner themselves. For example, the effort that a particular students make, uh, the completions of homework, and the participation in the classroom, and that's part of the grades. Now is that, are those indicators, are those standard across the entire country? Because yes. I think just looking at Canada, we have, you know, provinces and territories, and each one has its own Ministry of Education. And I would think consistency and standardization is going to be a problem in, in a single country, let alone the international linkages. Yes. I mean, thank you for asking that question. In China, the education system is centralized. So you have uh, the country's Ministry of Education, and they follow the similar procedures. Not saying everywhere is the same, but it does have a centralized education system. In Canada, it's different. The education system is at the provincial level, as you mentioned, and our study is mostly looking at Ontario. Ontario is a province that receives the largest international students across Canada. And so in Ontario, uh, the policy, the grading policy, is talking about achievement only. So. In the math classroom, the teacher is giving a grade that should, according to the policy, reflect the student's math achievement. And when you say achievement, you're talking about the score on a particular exam. You're not talking about effort or um, other aspects of what it takes to be a student. Yes. And so the effort piece is indicated separately. It's, it's a system called the learning skills. This is including communication, teamwork, effort. And so they're separate. So as you can see, the two countries have different values, and even at the policy level. So our study is a five-year study. So we look at the policy, which is our first year. And then the second year, we look at how teachers actually give grades, mm. so great practices. And the third year, we're going to talk about how within the education system, different stakeholders think about the grades, interpret grades, like this including teachers, students, parents, and principals. The fourth year, we're going to look at the consequences of grades, and we look at most of the students, is how that grades is interpreted. Does that have an impact on students' life, motivation, 
and their attitude towards learning. Holy cow. <laughs> and the fifth year, we're going to bring all the fourth year's uh, empirical evidence. We're going to put it together to answer the validity question, which is what you ask. So validity uh, in, in the assessment and evaluation field is basically talking about accuracy issue. So you have a grade, for example, 76. What does that really represent behind the number? What does 76 mean? So the validity is the issue not about the accuracy of the score or the grades, but is the interpretation, the use of that grades. Right. I, th- I'm, 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 I think I'm understanding how you can assess the validity uh, of measuring uh, a, a sort of a numerical. What does mm. 76 mean in China? What does mm. 76 mean in Ontario? I'm, I'm quite curious, and we've only got a few mm. minutes left in this mm. segment, but I'd like you to talk a little bit about um, uh, the aspect of stakeholders and what the research design is going to be. Are you going to be talking to parents? Are you going to be talking to teachers? Are these going to be qualitative interviews? I would think you're going to have, if that's the case, you're going to have so much data, it's going to be hard to, you know, synthesize all that. Talk about that. Um, It is going to be difficult. We are talking to people. But this piece that you mentioned with uh, multiple stakeholders is we're using a questionnaire. Okay. We've already got 800 data, sorry, 8,000 data from China already. This is the four groups, students, parents, uh, teachers, and their principals. This is the four. And this is only the China side of the data. And so we're in the middle of collecting data from the uh, Ontario province. Uh, Actually, it's not just Ontario. We open this to the uh, Canadian-wide. So we're we're actually using social media to collect the data. And I, I wanted to mention this is this study, the validity of the grades, and if you think about it, is when we do admission, we have students getting into our school system, getting into our university system. Later on, those people also including the professionals, the nurses, the doctors, and the teachers, and in here who come to our country. Right. And this is all related is we wanted to be able to understand the grades. So we make an accurate decision that who are the people at what level of their achievement. Because this has yeah. short-term impact on the school and community. It has a long-term impact for our country socially and economically as well. Uh, for sure. I think something you said at the very beginning, I think, mm. uh, kind of, brought that home to me. You talked mm. about the currency. Like it's, currency. Marks are like currency. Yeah. And I think that's such a good analogy. Um, uh, that you have to believe in the currency. You have to know what the currency represents. You know, it, if it's not uh, legitimate, then you get inflation and people will discard the currency and look for something that's more stable and, and believable. So what yeah. you're doing sounds like it's so critically important. I close out each episode of Blind Date with Knowledge by asking my guests to share something personal related to their research or their motivation associated with their research. So Li Ying, the microphone is back to you. Well, I was born and grew up in in China. So all through my education system, uh, 
I've been kind of a struggling or challenged challenges through the education system, through public exams, large scale testings, and I've seen how much impact that test oriented education system has on our students, not only on their achievement, motivation, attitude, it's actually put them into certain life categories. And they believe whether they will be able to be successful or not. Right. And so the grading study can't, uh, is related with in this values we put into education. I'm an educator, and I've moved from China to Canada for more than 20 years. And so the comparative studies is also making sense to me and coming to a country that highly values immigration. And for our students coming to this country, this is only a portion of it is only on Chinese students. And uh, you mentioned other studies that I have, uh, for example, the test preparations, they include, we include six categories of test takers. They're from six different countries. Wow. You know, uh, listening to you speak the last last few minutes, it seems like there's there's two, two aspects of uh, uh, out, two outcomes mm. that I think are, for me anyway, as the listener, significant. One is how you translate what is 76 from China mm. to 76 in, in, in schools in Ontario. That alone is a big undertaking. Then I think the, the aspect of your study where you're looking at the impact, and which we were just talking about, almost the psychological identity that yes. people absorb. If you get a low mark or a high mark, something is, is, is impacting your appreciation of how you are and you start behaving yeah, in, the in, in that way. Yeah, the well-being of that's a right. student. That's yeah. right. And that's, I'm, I'm sure that's, that's something that needs to be researched and discussed and, and, uh, and brought forward because there, there may be some things that we could be doing better to enable students to feel more uh, liberated and free in what they're doing as opposed to constricted and having to perform in a particular directed way. Yeah, well, this is what we educators do is to spend our time to research and to teach and to bring up better and better of the next generation. That's wonderful. I want you as my teacher. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) My guest in this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge has been Li Ying Chang, professor of uh, teaching English as a second foreign language and peer research consultant in the Faculty of Education at Queen's. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio, 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston, and we're located in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca slash research. If you have a question about anything related to research that you'd like discussed by our guests, or if you have any comments about today's conversation with Ying Cheng, please email me, Barry Kaplan, at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thanks very much for tuning in. So now what the machine can do is that for each legal question, for example, in the case of reasonable notice calculation, we'll have a system, an open access system that will be available in the next few months based on a couple of criteria. So for example, criteria that are important for the judges or for litigants. So for example, how old the employee is, uh, how long you work for the company, 
what kind of job they had. And then the person, I mean, the lawyers or the litigant would click on this uh, menu and then the system would give him like the three closest cases uh, to their situation. Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. In this episode, my guest is Samuel Dehan. Dr. Samuel Dehan is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Law and a Queen's National Scholar. He's the director of the Conflict Analytics Lab at Queen's, which is a legal tech global consortium on the application of data analytics and AI to dispute resolution and a negotiation. He's an adjunct professor of law at Cornell University, an affiliate faculty member of the Program on Negotiation at Harvard Law School, and a member of the European Incubator of the Brussels Bar. Dr. Dahan has worked as a legal secretary to the Court of Justice of the European Union and as a legal advisor for the Comparative Law Unit of the French Administrative Supreme Court. His research focuses on regulatory responses to the Euro crisis from an empirical data perspective. He's also nationally medaled athlete in Taekwondo. Hello, Samuel. Thank you very much for being on our show today. Hi, Barry. Thank you very much. Uh, let's begin our conversation by discussing the work of the Conflict Analytics Lab. Um, I'm going to quote from the, uh, the website. It says the conflict, that conflict analytics is the process of extracting actionable knowledge from negotiation, mediation, and settlement agreements, for example, customer disputes, employment, and commercial negotiation. Advanced analytics and AI tools can help to reveal trends and patterns in past disputes that inform legal and negotiating strategies and predict outcomes in current disputes. Conflict analytics does not provide black box solutions. Data-driven insights are not meant to replace human wisdom. Rather, they act as a way of complementing it. So this is an interesting, it's, it's, it's a ripe for all kinds of uh, interesting questions about the technology and, uh, and also uh, if there are controversial aspects of it. So let's, let's have you describe your, your AI approach and explain how it integrates with conventional law practices. And if you can use an example maybe to clarify, that would be terrific. Yes, for sure. Thank you very much, Barry. Um, so I don't have a really an AI approach per se because I am not myself an AI uh, scientist. So my, um, my colleagues and my co-directors uh, are AI researchers, but our appro approach is looking at text and taking laws, has, in law, the, the practice of law involve, involves reading a lot of text and so we're trying to train machines to read these texts and extract the relevant information. And usually the relevant information for a lawyer is what happened in the past. I mean, when you're a lawyer, what you want to know is the relevant precedent. And over the last 10 years, I mean, because of uh, technological innovation, LexisNexis, Westlaw, those who are not familiar, are the largest database. For a lawyer now, it's becoming very difficult to find the, the relevant information. Maybe 30 or 40 years ago, when you were a lawyer is trying to settle or, or, or resolve 
legal disputes or non-legal disputes, what they did is they look at their past experience, or maybe there are a couple of precedents. Now the situation is fairly different. And there's millions of, millions of texts, millions of precedents, uh, uh, millions of settlement agreements. So now we think the machines can help to go through this text, past text, and extract what is the closest uh, solution to the, to the situation that you're dealing with right now. So what I'd like you to talk about is the difference between doing a conventional keyword search mm and this AI approach. Yes, very well. So yes, a conventional keyword approach, like a Boolean research, Google-style research, you, let's say, an employee is uh, terminated and they want to know uh, how much notice they should be getting from their employers. And what you would do is you would say, okay, you go on LexisNexis or even Google or Canly, which are like the open access uh, database in Canada. And uh, you would look for termination, wrongful uh, notice, and you would get probably 20, 30, maybe 100 cases. So what you would do as a lawyer or even as a, as a litigant, because actually that kind of technology, our research is mainly... Um, geared at helping self-represented litigants. That means people who don't have a lot of legal backgrounds, but that's a different subject. Um, so you would go through this database and look at every cases, every case, open the, I mean, click on the link, go with control F, search for the, right. And then you would probably spend a couple hours, maybe a couple of days. Right. So now what the machine can do is that for each legal question, for example, in the case of reasonable notice calculation, we'll have a system, an open access system that will be available in the next few months based on a couple of criteria. So for example, criteria that are important for the judges or for litigants. So for example, how old the employee is, uh, how long you worked for the company, uh, what kind of job they had, and then the person, I mean, the lawyers or the litigant would click on this uh, menu and then the system would give him like the three closest cases uh, to their situation. So I think it was in the uh, the uh, um, the lab website. It talked about predictability, and I, I I'd like you to talk about that a little bit more because I think um, most people listening to this conversation would think, okay, this sounds good. Uh, it's rule driven, hmm. but it, would there be an aspect of subjectivity? Would yeah. your approach be contested by the person you're up against? Okay, so that's a very, very good question. Actually, that's also the main goal of this lab is that we are aiming at publishing the code, the research, uh, unlike other organizations, especially private organizations who are claiming to achieve a very high level of accuracy without really explaining why, and and which is fairly problematic in the courtroom because you can't really say, oh, my algorithm says that I should be getting $5,000. Okay, so why? The other problem, so, so now in that regard, it is possible if you, it is possible for the lawyers to, to check the cases and say, actually, these cases are not that relevant. I mean, they are relevant to a certain extent, but they're not that similar to the to the actual case we're trying to resolve now. But that's the second problem is now, for certain legal questions, we can achieve very high level of accuracy, so 90%, 95%. But for other cases, in other situations, we can't because there is a level of subjectivity in the ju judicial decision-making that is 
not possible to overcome. I mean, no matter how good your algorithm is, you won't be able to predict if for the same set of facts, two judges will reach a different conclusion. There's no way. And and so, so for example, I go back to the example of wrongful termination. Our algorithm help, helps us to predict a range. So let's say you worked for 10 years, you may be getting between nine and 12 months reasonable noise. But it's almost impossible, no matter how algorithm, we tried all kind of deep learning, machine learning, all sort of algorithm, it's not possible to pin it down to exactly nine and a half months because there's a group of judges that will say you should be getting nine months and there's a group of judges that will be saying so the reality is just not there. Maybe in the next 20 years because judges will be aware that other judges are reaching different solutions, but right now that's not. And it's I think it's a good thing that there is still... Uh, um, flexibility in the final in 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 the in the final outcome. One of the other things that strikes me about the negotiation, the sort of uh, uh, the warrior-like uh, resolution of, of of an issue is that you're coming in with an advantage uh, where you have the the AI, you have. Uh, you can produce a lot of data that that has sort of a uh, a solid base. If you go up against um, a negotiator, a lawyer that doesn't have this or can interpret that, would that in some way jeopardize uh, the ability of the of the case to go forward? Uh, would the judge, for example, see that you have an unfair advantage? I mean. Okay, so that that's a uh, that's a fair point. Actually, the the French government uh, is pushing for the uh, legislation to ban the use of statistics applied to uh, judicial decisions uh, because that's the argument. They say there is a, a violation of the European Convention of Human Rights, and there would be. Uh, uh, um, uh, violation of the provision uh, on equality of arms. The reality is that while I so there are two solutions here. So actually, there are two problems. The first problem is that nowadays, I mean, there are huge firms and small firms, and there is already an asymmetry of power, no matter, I mean, um, whether we, you know, we like it or not. The second thing is that actually, I think technology can resolve that issue. I think for me, especially if we build open access technology, that means we can give access to this technology to the small firms that you're referring to and not make this technology only available to large firms, which is actually what's happening now. Uh, the larger tech companies and only large firms have access to that kind of technology. And I think the goal of this lab is not only to make this technology accessible to small and medium-sized firms, but actually to self-represent the litigants, to give them some kind of access to the legal service. It seems to me, uh, just to close out this section, that the issue of training and getting these other firms up to speed is going to be very critical. Yeah. And uh, it, obviously this will be taught in schools going forward, but there's got to be you know, dozens, scores of uh, yeah. small and medium-sized companies that may not have this capacity right yeah. now. So maybe through their bar association or some other mechanism, yeah. they'll, they'll need to get this training. Mm. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston, and we're in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University research website at queensu.ca slash research. I close out each episode of Blind Date with Knowledge by asking my guest to share something personal 
related to their research or their motivation associated with their research. So Samuel, the microphone is yours. Okay, so um, I've thought about many things. So so um, I think one thing is that I know you're, a lot of your um, other speakers are talking about quotes, songs. I mean, I have, there's one author that I really like. He's actually a, a colleague from the University of Pennsylvania. He's a professor at Wharton. Uh, he doesn't know me, obviously, but I really like him. Uh, he has a podcast called uh, Work Life. And um, so his name is Adam Grant, and, and he wrote a book that really changed my life and also made me want to be doing that work. The book is called Give and Take, and he collected a lot of empirical data on on on, um, on givers and takers, and he's proving that by being a giver, uh, you can still be more successful. Why I don't see myself in any of these categories, I think this is a good uh, ideology, a good philosophy for life. Well, that's wonderful. You know, it struck me when you were talking about that. You probably know this through your law background, but uh, is, is it John Rawls who's got the... Yeah. So is it similar? <laughs> there is, maybe he's, I don't know. That's, I don't know, we'll, a lot of my legal philosopher colleagues will, would, would probably kill me for saying that. Maybe he's a, he's a modern version of John Rawls, but uh, no, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Samuel. Uh, my guest in this episode of Flying Date with Knowledge has been Dr. Samuel DeHaan. He's an assistant professor in the Faculty of Law and a Queen's National Scholar. If you have a question about anything related to research that you would like discussed by our guests, or if you have comments about today's conversation with Samuel DeHaan, please call me or email me, Barry Kaplan at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thank you very much for tuning in. <laughs>